And now, after they had that faith, after they had acknowledged the Buddha as their teacher and taken refuge, and now their mind was ready, together with their parami, their spiritual perfections and the development of their faculties from past life, plus a faith they had acquired now, and the Buddha recognized now I can teach them. And he took them up to a hill close to the Niranjana river, where they lived and bathed and did their rituals of bathing. And you can still go there nowadays. I can really recommend it. Gaya Sisa, the Gaya Peak. And you've got a beautiful view over Gaya. You can see the river. And there's sufficient space. You can actually imagine the 1,000 pikus sitting there. And it's a great place for reciting the fire sermon. And actually, because there's no real shelter, no, you're sitting on the bare rock. If you're there during the day in the Indian sun, you can relate to a fire sermon because the sun is usually quite fierce. And how does the discourse start? Well, it starts by the Buddha making this really challenging statement. And he says, no, the all is burning. The universe is a blaze, now the whole world is a flame, is flaming, is burning. It's a whole conflagration of the whole universe. And then he explains, now what is the universe? When we hear universe or the whole world, the all, in modern Western conception, if you think of a kind of objective, truly existing external reality. You've got the planet Earth and the Moon, and you can have these space satellites flying through space, and even to Jupiter and Uranus, solar system, and then you've got other suns and solar systems and Milky Way. Now this is the conception in Western science. But in the discipline of the noble ones, in the way the Buddha is teaching, what is the universe in the discipline of the noble ones? It's a universe of your subjective conscious experience. The universe is a conscious experience we are living in. This is what you can never get out. And what is this subjective conscious experience? Now the eye, the eye faculty, now the ability to see forms and forms. And uh, forms come into the range of the eye and there is a sufficient act of attention, you pay attention to that and then Eye consciousness arises. We have awareness of the forms. We would call it, I see something. The Buddha would just call it, no, there's the eye, there's forms. Eye consciousness arises. And all three together are called sense contact. And with sense contact as condition, you will always have feeling. When you see something, you will always feel pleasant or unpleasant. 
if it feels very unpleasant, we call it painful. If it feels very pleasant, we say we are super happy. Sometimes it's just neutral. So this is you know, the basics of uh, conscious experience, and this is the universe we are living in. I forms, I consciousness. Now this is what we call contact, sense contact via the eye door. And then based on that, and the feelings will arise, it will be pleasant or unpleasant or painful even. And the same with the ear, ear and sounds. And then when we call, you know, I, I hear something, the Buddha would say, in the ear consciousness arising, that is no contact via the sense of hearing. And again, whenever you hear something, when there's ear consciousness, it will feel pleasant or unpleasant. If you hear some beautiful chanting, it gives you a pleasant feeling. If you hear a chainsaw or a lawnmower, it may give you an unpleasant feeling. That's the universe we're living in. The universe of um, the six senses and the consciousness arising based on them. That is a subjective universe we can never get out, which constitutes our world. The same with the nose, fragrances, the tongue and flavors, the body and bodily sensations, the mind and ideas. And now the Buddha claims that all of that is burning. All of that is a flame. All of that is just one big conflagration, one big fire. What does he mean by that? What is this universe burning with? What is this fire that is burning the universe of our conscious experience? The Buddha says it is burning with the fire of desire. It's burning with the fire of the hatred, anger. It's burning with the fire of delusion. And we can notice that. Because if you see something you really like, you may experience a very strong desire. If you're trying to do a diet and someone puts your favorite food in front of you, you're not allowed to eat it. This is when you can notice that fire. Can you notice how your mind is burning with desire? And then maybe when you can smell your favorite food, this is the mind burning with desire. And we hear beautiful music. And when we have a hot shower on a cold day, a beautiful and a warm feeling or a hot bath on a cold day, a cold shower on a hot day. Because all central experience has that quality. If it's pleasant, it usually ends up burning us with desire. Same if it's unpleasant. And if someone is calling your names or insulting you or accusing you unfairly 
that you have done something which you may have never done and criticizing you, blaming you for things you have never done. If you hear that, it's just words. It's actually just a molecule in the air vibrating sound waves. Then it's your eardrum, a tiny vibration in your eardrum. And this thing, the conscious awareness of sound. And then uh, the fire of anger, of a version of hatred starting to burn us. If you are trying to sleep at night because you come out to the monastery early in the morning and the neighbors are having a big party and playing the music you don't like, some rap music or something, you can notice another fire of anger burning. And you got a headache or a backache now that is bodily sensation. Now that is the physical body, bodily sensations. And then uh, the consciousness of that bodily feeling. And do you notice how your mind starts burning with anger and aversion when you have a headache? Do you notice your mind burning with anger and aversion if you have a backache? Often the burning of the aversion against the pain is worse than the pain itself. If you carefully look at that and investigate it, a lot of the suffering is actually not the pain, but the burning of our aversion and anger against the pain. So the whole world of subjective conscious experience through the sense doors that is what is burning with anger, with desire, and also with delusion. Because we get deluded. The food which we burn with desire for may actually be very bad for us. You may have diabetes, but the cream cake may still be very attractive, the sweet cream cake isn't it? You may already have had quite a number of wood canals, but the sweets and the candies are still very attractive. Now this is a delusion that something which is actually harming us, we perceive as being good for us. Now this is how the central experience is constantly burning with delusion. There's also the delusion, if we get that, then we will be happy. This is how desire usually works. Once I've got this job, then I'll be happy. Have you ever felt like that? If I can secure that job, then finally I'll be happy. Then you get that job, and after some time, are you happy? No. If you can get that partner, that spouse, then you'll be happy. And you get them, and the divorce lawyers are already rubbing their hands, because after some time, are you happy? No. If you can get that much income, if you can get one million dollars, ask the people who don't have one million but one billion dollars whether they are happy. Usually not. 
So that is another delusion the mind is burning with, another delusion if I get that, I be happy. And this is why we run after that. In the end we notice that we're actually not happy, it doesn't work. It's never really fulfilling. It gives us a kick for a while. But the fulfillment we expect is no, finally I'm happy and that's it. Never coming, never coming. And this is how it's burning with delusion. And additionally, the Buddha points out now the whole subjective world of experience, conscious experience through the five sense doors is also burning jatiya, jara, maranena. It's burning with birth, aging and death. Because it is this central desire and aversion and delusion which keeps us in the circle of rebirth. Once we die, when our mind separates from the physical body, what gets us back in another physical body is exactly these desires. And this is how the circle of samsara continues. This is why our central experience through the senses is burning with rebirth, with old age with sickness and with death. This is why it's burning with pain and disappointment and loss and frustration and depression and despair. Because inherently these things are impermanent. You can never get some pleasant feeling from any form that will last forever, will always lead to disappointment. You can never have a person you love that will be with you forever will always lead to disappointment, will lead to what we call dukkha. So the whole universe of our experience and our conscious awareness through the six senses is burning with the defilements and with the basic fact that it keeps us in the circle of rebirth, which means being born again, aging again, and ultimately dying again. And in between, there will always be that disappointing and that characteristic of suffering, of frustration and depression, because often we can't fulfill our desires, and even if we fulfill them, will we still be over and then comes a disappointment. So this is obviously not a good situation to be in, isn't it? <laughs> or is that a desirable state to be in the middle of a conflagration right here in your conscious awareness? You're lost in this gigantic fire and all the senses is constantly burning with defilements, greed, hatred, delusion, desire and disappointment and pain is a pretty bad situation, isn't it? But the reason the Buddha is pointing it out is because it's possible to get out. And the next half of that discourse is now showing how to get out. Because if we open up to that, if we really contemplate that, if we are not trying to hide that by delusion, and pretend that it's not burning, but that it's all good, it's all fine. 
we don't do that, but we, with brutal honesty, acknowledge that situation. And if we do that with insight, wisely understanding that, then we can experience disenchantment to all these things that are burning. Nibida in Pali. We are no longer attracted by that. We are no longer caught by that. Now the bait, like the little worm on the hook which gets the fish to bite, or the bait that the hunter puts out, or what the people put in a mouse trap. You put a little bit of cheese when the mouse tries to take it, and then the trap will smash its neck. And that is our problem, because these things are constantly trapping us. The eye and forms and eye consciousness. The mind and ideas and mind consciousness and the feelings we get from that. Some beautiful fantasy in your mind and feels so good. This is what is trapping us. And it's actually possible to get out of that. It's not necessary to be trapped in that. There is a cessation of all these six sense spheres. There's a cessation of the eye. There's a cessation of forms. There's a cessation of feelings. And all this can come to an end. And then your heart can experience what is beyond that. And your heart can experience what is called Nibbana. There is actually that element, that sphere, that Dhamma that is beyond all this world of subjective conscious experience and that is a complete state of freedom, Nibbana. It can be realized, it has been realized by the Buddha, has been realized by thousands and millions of people since then, that it can be realized by us. So most people imagine that this is all there is. It's difficult to imagine that there could be anything else than this universe. But there is something else called Nibbana, called freedom, called Vimutti, called the end of suffering. And the only way of getting to that is by being disenchanted and letting go of that whole universe which we only know. And once we can see that it's burning, then the mind can let go. As a natural reflex, if you touch the uh, stove, and you've got these, what do you call these, heating plates? It's not an open fire, so you may have forgotten that you left the stove on, and then accidentally you touch it, and it burns your hand. What do you do? You immediately pull back, because it hurts. That one is obvious, and everyone does it. But when you have the nice food in front of you, we are too deluded, we don't notice that it's actually burning us as well. But it is. So we have to contemplate, we have to develop wisdom that we can actually see that this whole world of subjective conscious experience, that all sense impressions, and that all the feelings we get from that, even the pleasant feelings, that they are ultimately 
burning us. Because when we notice that, then we can let go. The process of letting go here is described by the Buddha in the first disenchantment. From disenchantment there comes dispassion. And from dispassion there comes letting go, freedom, release. This is why we are contemplating Dukkha. Not because we have a morbid fascination as Buddhists with the negative aspects of experience, but because the contemplation of Dukkha leads us to let go so that we go beyond Dukkha. But one can't avoid that process of acknowledging with brutal honesty that this stuff is burning us, that it is painful. Because only that realization will cause us not to let go. So the reason that the Buddha opens with this shocking statement and that he gives us this very unsettling description how our whole universe of conscious experience is just one big fire of suffering and defilements is not to bring us down. It's not to make us hopeless, it's the opposite. It's meant to make us see this as a reality and then as a result of that seeing to feel disenchanted, to feel dispassionate and to let go. Because once you notice that it hurts, you lose the passion on touching that. Once you have the strong awareness of the wood canal, you don't eat the nice sweets anymore. Once you had been hospitalized with diabetes, you restrain yourself with the cakes and the sweets because you finally get it, that it's uh, too painful. So although we are looking at pain, we're looking at dukkha, the purpose of doing that is actually getting out of dukkha, getting free from dukkha. And unfortunately, the only way of letting go is you have to go through that. You have to see it. You have to open it up. And I really like the whole second half where the Buddha goes and so all the things that we have to let go of. An important part of the Sutta is also splitting up and analyzing experience in separate parts because it's easier to let go of parts. If you just say, I let go of the whole world, it's very difficult to do. But if you separate it and you have these single parts, it's easier to let go of the parts. And what are the parts? The eye, the ability to see, the eye faculty. Does mimpi nibindati, we feel disenchanted about the eye, we feel disenchanted about form, anything we can see. We feel disenchanted about the ear and anything we can hear. We feel disenchanted and dispassionate. Our passion fades away for all these feelings that constantly come from sense contact. Many people are already somewhat disenchanted with the unpleasant and painful feeling. 
No, but they come as a pair, they come as a package deal. And if you don't like painful feeling, you also have to get go of the pleasant feeling. It's just not possible as a package deal. You cannot say, I only dislike painful feeling, but I want only pleasant. That will never work. The only way is not to let go of both. And whether we feel painful or pleasant by seeing something or hearing or tasting or smelling or physical sensation or even just the mind, we have to let go of all of it. So I really get quite high when chanting the second half. Evan Passan Vikave Rupas Mimpi Nipindati Sorry, Chakos Mimpi Nipindati Rupesopi Nipindati Chakovinyanipi Nipindati Chakosampasepi Nipindati Yampidang Chakosampasapatriya Upachati Vedayitang Sokangva Dokangva Adokama Sokangva Das Mimpi Nipindati Nipindati is a disenchantment the repulsion, the turning away from these things. Uh, the Buddha really drives the point home, uh, constantly repeating, Chakus Mimpi Nipindati. And if you get disenchanted uh, with the eye faculty, Rupesupi Nipindati, we get disenchanted uh, with forms which we can see. Chakuvenya Nepi Nipindati, we get disenchanted uh, with the awareness of forms, with eye consciousness, what we call I see something. And we get disenchanted by sense contact through the eye door. Yampidam Chakosampasapatriya Upachati Vedayatam and whatever feeling arises based on eye contact, sukhangva, dukhangva, adukama sukhangva, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, doesn't mimpi nibindati. We get disenchanted with that as well. And you can notice that when you meditate, you close your eyes and uh, if you live very restrained and meditate a lot, you notice how strong our desire is you know, for all these sense contacts. The moment when you try to restrain that, not yet to completely abandon, just restraining it, if you notice you know, how powerful this desire is, we want to see something. You want to go out and travel and see things. You want to go onto YouTube and see these things. You want to hear things. You want to hear the music. You want to hear your loved ones talking to you. That's one thing which you notice in meditation because you're usually trying to close down and restrain the senses as much as possible. 
And the moment if there's no external input, and then the mind usually goes quite crazy. And the mind tries to substitute by imagining things you see and imagining things you hear. And we usually can't imagine that there's something else. A crucial point, there is something else. And what is so scary for people often is that it feels like if I don't see anything, I don't hear anything, and I don't even think anything, it's like an annihilation. No, no. That is freedom. That is when the heart will be totally free. Totally released. Free from Dukkha. And Nibindam Virajati. As we experience disenchantment, as the mind is turning away from the whole world of subjective conscious experience and sense contact and the six senses, as the mind is getting disenchanted and turning away from that, the passion will fade away, we will become dispassionate. And the dispassion, the fading away of passion, is the cause, the condition of our release, the heart being finally freed from that. The heart, the transcending, so to speak, ending the only universe we have ever lived in and the only one we can imagine and experience what is beyond that. Uh, namely Vimutti, namely freedom, namely Nibbana. And as the 1,000 monks were listening to that discourse and contemplating the words of the Buddha, their, heart was, their hearts were released, their minds were released, and they all experienced the state beyond experience in any of the six senses. We all experience you know, the cessation of the six sense spheres. They experience the cessation of feelings. And they experience you know, the deathless element, freedom, Nibbana. So any comments or questions? Yeah, please, yeah. When, when does disenchantment sort of... How do you stop disenchantment from going into aversion? What I'm talking about today in the middle of the Vasa, and it is pretty high Dhamma. And I'm very glad about your question for the live stream. Someone was asking, how can you distinguish disenchantment from aversion? And that one is actually difficult. The crucial difference is that aversion is an unwholesome state, is a defilement, and is connected with anger, dosa, hatred, whereas disenchantment is something very wholesome and positive, and it's not connected with aversion, but it's simply based on insight and wisdom and seeing things as they truly are. That is a crucial difference. But you're exactly right, uh, and many people can get that easily wrong. It's much, much more easy to experience aversion. 
But that is a natural thing. Any non-enlightened person will experience aversion a lot. Whereas to experience disenchantment in the way the Buddha means that, Nibbida, requires a considerable amount of insight and wisdom and is usually only possible when you really contemplate with considerable um, depth. And usually it is uh, necessary or at least very helpful to have a basis in samadhi. So usually when you develop samadhi first, the aversion is already eliminated because the effect of samadhi is that all these negative mind states like an aversion, ill will, anger, hatred, they are suppressed. And now you start that contemplation. And the samadhi still has this effect of suppressing aversion. And then you observe with wisdom and insight, vipassana. And then what arises while aversion is suppressed by samadhi, and while you're actually contemplating with wisdom, that's a good chance that this is now actually nibida, disenchantment and not aversion. But thanks so much for the question. Now, admittedly, now I'm talking about very high Dhamma today, because that was given by the Buddha for people who had the ability to understand it and become completely realized in the full Nibbana. And this question was very valuable because when people hear it and they're not quite at that stage, the danger is to go into aversion, which would be counterproductive. The same with the painful feeling. That's a normal response for any unenlightened person to have aversion. It's not really disenchantment. So it is very helpful you know, to have a good basis in samadhi for doing that contemplation. Because then it will not flip over into aversion. And the samadhi also helps that one doesn't become too afraid. Because if you really start contemplating that, and you realize you know, this is really the universe I'm living in, and it's all burning with these you know, defilements and disappointment and pain and so on, uh, quite challenging, quite challenging. And the problem is, you know, if we haven't seen the Dhamma, we haven't experienced what is beyond that. So it looks like you're in a house and then there's no uh, way outside, there's nothing outside. In reality there is, but we haven't experienced it yet. So you know, it can be very challenging. You may get the impression that you're stuck in the house, and you realize it's all burning, but you don't really see how you could get out of that. So it's also important to have uh, faith, confidence, conviction in the teaching of the Buddha, and that you can experience a state beyond the six senses. And there is Nibbana, there is a deathless element, and that this can be realized. Because A, it's to contemplate that everything you ever experience is burning, that's very, very challenging. You need to have that conviction that the escape is possible because there is something else. Yes? Yeah, my question is also quite related to that question. Because I found that some, sometimes we go for, like, for example, coaching meditation and we try to close all the six things close all the faculties to 
like focused and and they some somehow they try to be away from the suffering. Like they, they avoid the dukkha. A very good comment. For the live stream, someone is talking, often people meditate with the intention to avoid dukkha. And the uh, samadhi is like that. The samadhi is basically avoiding dukkha. You focus on something, a wholesome meditation object like metta, like the Buddha, which is very uplifting, you feel very happy. So uh, samadhi is a practice where you temporarily give non-attention to dukkha and make the mind very happy. The drawback is that this is always impermanent. You can manage when you develop samadhi and that skill. And you can get your mind into a state where there's virtually no dukkha except for impermanence. You're blissed out or you're totally equanimous in the deeper samadhis. And it would be you know, almost perfect except now that it's still impermanent. And that still you know, the defilements are there in their underlying tendencies and will come back only suppressed. Similarly, the delusion is still there. The delusion of ego is still there. But very refined. But it's still helpful to build a foundation for the inside now. And uh, there is a danger that people try to do only that part of the practice. And some people, even if they can't develop samadhi, they perceive their practice as being to get out of dukkha as much as possible by not having contact with other human beings, so you don't experience irritation. <laughs> Although you may notice that you may get irritated with yourself. It may not work, no? but this is what people try to do, and they try to eliminate everything, to have the perfect retreat situation where you get a nice food and regularly, and it's not too hot, not too cold, so that you have no dukkha because there's no challenges, really. This is a little bit a dead end. It's not going to work. You may succeed now that you establish these conditions for a while, but it doesn't eliminate the defilements, and you will not be able to maintain that. And at some stage, someone will come and will irritate you. And like Tenzin Palmo, this Tibetan nun, English woman who ordained, and then she lived in this cave 5,000 meters or more high in the Himalaya, and I think she was on a seven-year retreat. And I think three and a half years into her retreat or something, she suddenly had the police at her cave and telling her that her visa is some problem and she has to leave now. <laughs> Just imagine the shock. It must, must be absolutely, absolutely awful and overpowering. So you, you, you never could do that permanently and will not work. And at some stage you get aversion against the trees or against yourself. Or so uh, it's important to do both. You do samadhi by just focusing on something very beautiful, not giving attention to dukkha, to uplift your mind, to suppress the defilements. And that then is the foundation that now you can face and really go into dukkha and contemplate it but without flipping over into aversion, without flipping over into depression. Because if the conditions are not there and you start contemplating dukkha a lot, you may just get depressed. If you notice that you're contemplating dukkha, 
and you're becoming more and more depressed, you have to immediately recognize you're not following the teaching the Buddha intended it to be. The contemplation of dukkha is not intended to make you depressed. The contemplation of dukkha is intended for your mind to let go of dukkha and to get a feeling of being freed from dukkha. If we contemplate dukkha and the only result is that we get more and more depressed, we have to understand we can't do it yet the way the Buddha wanted us to do it. And then you have to pull out. And you have to go back and use a meditation object that is inspiring to make your mind happy. So it's quite fascinating to really understand dukkha. You first have to make the mind really happy. Not just happy, but uh, rapturous and blissed out. And curiously, that is a good condition then to contemplate dukkha and get rid of dukkha. So very important when you notice you contemplate dukkha and you don't get any feeling of letting go and being freed from suffering, but you just become more and more depressed. You have to acknowledge it doesn't work. And then you have to go back to samatha practice, making the mind happy as a suitable samatha object, loving kindness, the Buddha, the breath. And once your mind develops joy and wholesome rapture and bliss based on samadhi, and then all these hindrances, five hindrances get suppressed, then you can go back into contemplating dukkha. And then ideally you can do that without drifting into aversion against the dukkha and without drifting into frustration and depression about all the dukkha but going towards nibbida, disenchantment, turning away this passion and letting go. So you need to have the wisdom faculty constantly checking out and supervising what you're doing and whether your contemplation is actually giving the results that are intended. Samadhi is, is a tool for you to like make you more stronger to deal with the dukkha. Yeah, because um, we because based on that we have more wisdom to like to understand to understand the suffering and that is a way we can let it go In, instead of hiding that. Is it correct? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now the samadhi will not uh, eliminate the dukkha. It will only put it under temporary suspense, so to speak. You're temporarily freed from the vast majority of all dukkha. But it's always only temporary. So if you do only that, it will never lead to a final end to things. But the samadhi is extremely helpful because it enables you to contemplate dukkha without going into aversion, without going into fear, without going uh, into frustration and depression. And that is a skill of a good meditator and to recognize, aha, this contemplation doesn't work now. I contemplate dukkha, but I'm just getting into aversion or just getting depressed. It's totally not intended. And then to have that 
honesty and strength to acknowledge that and then you pull out and you recognize first I have to make my mind uplifted and happy and joyful. Yes. So you said that disenchantment would be usually associated with insight. Yeah, insight is a very uh, cause of that disenchantment. Yeah. You have some insight, but it, the insight is not, well, not really there because you still have a desire to have it. Yeah, someone is asking, for example, one uh, wants a drink or some food which is unhealthy, and then one contemplates that it's bad, and then one may be uh, able to restrain oneself and not take it, but uh, it may not be real disenchanted because the desire is still there. One can still notice the desire. Yeah, that is correct. And uh, we are talking here in this sutta about a very uh, high level of practice. And if one is more like at the level that there's some food which is bad for me and I struggle to restrain myself of eating it, you're usually not in a position where you could contemplate uh, in such a vein that you can become a complete arahant and realize Nibbana. And this is a much more basic practice. And it's not so much inside practice yet, it's more like a skillful means for practicing sense restraint. What you're describing is not so much yet the vipassana, but it's more like what we call sense restraint. And in order to practice sense restraint, it's certainly helpful to contemplate the ardinava, the danger in that thing. But it's a more um, basic contemplation, not yet on the level of seeing things as they truly are and vipassana, but on a simple level of using wisdom skillfully to support sense restraint. And of course you still have the desire, but at least you're successful with that contemplation to restrain yourself enough that you don't indulge in terms of body and speech. Yeah. This is how we gradually build up steam, if one can do that more and more. Again, the samadhi is important because once you establish samadhi, this, this whole desire for that food will actually drop away. If a person comes out of deep samadhi, it's not like they're coming out and immediately thinking about their favorite food. They will not be interested. Some of these great ajans, they describe, they're meditating, and then they really make progress in the night, meditating all night, and they get samadhi and they may not even go arms on next day. They just fast one day because they have no, no interest and they just want to enjoy that day in solitude. Okay, thanks for your interest and I hope you can all escape the conflagration and please have the faith, have the confidence now that you can get out of that. It's not like that what is burning is the only thing we have. And there's something beyond. There's a deathless element and it can be realized, you can get out. Good luck with that. <laughs>